Uh, you want? Do you want headphones to hear yourself? To listen to yourself? It's not necessary. But I don't know. I think that would freak me out. Okay, then don't. We don't want. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> don't worry. All right, you ready? Sure. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Welcome to another episode of Science Stories. Today, my guest is Dr. Perrote. That she's an assistant professor of psychology at Texas State University. And since you work with the Latino community and alcoholism and stuff like that, I pronounce it Perrote, but I guess it's not the right pronunciation. That is correct. Can you please? You are not the first to say such pronunciation. It would be uh, Perrot. Perrot. Okay. Yes. So, Dr. Perot, first of all, congratulations on your recent research award from NIH. Thank I, you. I know it's pretty hard to get one, so congratulations. It was a lot, yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of work, yeah. I, I imagine, yeah. Yeah, life-changing though, life-changing for sure. Can you please summarize your line of research? I can try, I can try. Um, I think that um, something that I would like to work on more as an early career researcher is my ability to summarize my research. So. Um, I would say that, so I actually have a paper, it's a, it's a literature review on traditional gender roles uh, and alcohol use among uh, Hispanic and Latino folks. And I worked on this paper with a collaborator. And there's a paragraph at the end of the paper that I, I think summarizes my research way better. And I wish I just had it memorized so I could just spit that out right now, but I don't. So I'll try to paraphrase. But basically what I'm trying to do is take these two different I don't want to say competing, more complementary theoretical frameworks, right? So you've got socio-ecological theory where you've got prescriptions and norms that are being transmitted kind of through the environment. And then you've got cognitive motivational theory, right? You have these expectations that people have about the way things are going to affect them and the motivations that they have or the reasons they have for engaging in certain behaviors. And so you need to kind of mash these together, integrate these together, right? And then use that as a framework to then explain, okay, well, why do people engage in risky behavior? And when I talk about risky behavior, I'm talking about health risk behavior. Um, recently, um, well, recently is not really correct, for several years now, I would say I've zeroed in almost exclusively on alcohol use and misuse as the risky behavior that I study. But yeah, so just a combination of these approaches to help explain um, alcohol use, misuse. And then a lot of my work does focus predominantly on Hispanic and Latino populations. What would be another example of risk behavior? Um, I would say, I mean, there, there's we can think of all kinds of things as risky behavior, right, depending on how you... Um, are thinking about risk in my own line of work. The other behaviors that I've worked with that I would dub risky behaviors are primarily um, risky sexual behavior, right? So having unprotected sex with multiple partners um, and then drug use as well. So alcohol and substance use. Um, some work, I think there was a paper, you know, I published last year um, with this measure called the DOSPERT. And it has, I mean, you're talking about financial risks, gambling, right? Things like that are also included. So it, it's pretty wide. I mean, risky behavior is pretty much any behavior that you engage in that you are aware that there could be adverse consequences to that behavior. That's a risk. And why have you focused on the Latino community? So I think that there's, there's, there's a personal and professional explanation for that, and they kind of hang out together. Um, first of all, I'm, I live in San Antonio, Texas. So I work at Texas State University, um, which is in San Marcos, but my home is in San Antonio. And um, I've lived there longer than anywhere else in my life. I lived there for a little bit as a kid, uh, moved back very intentionally as a very young adult um, because I loved the community so much. So 
for folks who aren't familiar with San Antonio, Texas and South Texas, it's predominantly a Hispanic and Latino town, right? Um, particularly folks from uh, Mexico. Um, a lot of folks there are living in San Antonio. Um, so there's that. I, you know, my bachelor's degree, master's degree, doctoral degree all came from uh, HSI with a very Hispanic serving institution. Let me not, <laughs> let me clarify my acronyms with a very large proportion of Hispanic and Latino students. So, right, so my, my classmates are Hispanic and Latino, right? My kids' teachers, I'm a mom, my kids' teachers, a lot of Hispanic, Latino. So I feel very connected to this community, even though I myself, you know, will say I don't identify as somebody who is Hispanic and Latino myself. So there's that. And then as an undergraduate researcher, I realized that I was really interested in this concept of cultural psychology and, and the ways that psychological process might occur differently for people with different backgrounds. And so I began working as an undergraduate in the Latino Health Research Initiative. Um, and that is where I really pivoted towards what I would say is my current line of research. So it was there that I encountered this huge body of literature that up until then had been unknown to me about health disparities, particularly alcohol-related health disparities that disproportionately burden folks from um, racial and ethnic minoritized groups like Hispanic and Latino folks or black folks, right? And so it was because of that that I really kind of seized onto it. It was like, this is where I need to make my research home and this is where I want to make an impact. Wow, what a, what a story. I mean, I, I can feel you're super passionate about your work. And, yeah. And that's really exciting. Yeah, thank you. So I think you, you work a lot with machismo, marianismo. Yes. And lately you're focusing more on the you're, you're trying to focus more on the feminine gender roles, right? Yes. Would you tell us ab about your, your latest study, the one that, that it's titled Domains Matter, a prospective investigation of traditional feminine gender roles and alcohol use among Latinas, please? Yes, I would, I would love to talk about that study. So first I'll say that, that the data that are presented in that study are data that I collected during my dissertation. Um, and I think hopefully we'll talk a little bit about acculturation later. So I, I want to preface all of this to say that it is framed up in this broader acculturation. Um, would would you rather explain acculturation it first? It might help, actually, if we can talk about acculturation please. first, yes, because yes. that's the backdrop Go for ahead. a lot of the work Go ahead, I do. Please. do you mind? So I noticed reading your, your work that there's a difference between acculturation and enculturation. Yes. Can you please work, walk us through each and the difference yes. between them? Yes. So... Um, Acculturation theory and acculturation research was what I really first started to get into when I was at the LHRI, the Latino Health Research Initiative, um, and understanding how um, this concept of acculturation was related to health risk behavior. So first, let me explain um, or try to explain. It's a huge concept, really, what acculturation generally is, and then I can break it down into the different dimensions of acculturation. So I come at thinking about acculturation well, I want to say for a psychological perspective, but really I think a lot of the ways that I think about acculturation is uh, informed by anthropologists, right? And I think about it as this like post-migration intercultural contact process that happens when you have uh, immigrants, right, and their families and eventually their descendants, you know, move over and root down in a new place, right? And so you've got you know, this, this group of people, this, this family and descendants that all bring these customs and rituals and language and values with them, right? And then you've got this receiving host culture, this U.S. culture in a lot of my work. I talk about the receiving host culture as U.S. culture mainstream. And so there's also all of these like rituals and behaviors and language and values and all of that. And there's this contact that happens. And so you've got on both sides, the people who were already, you know, in the mainstream environment, the people who had been living there already, and then the people who have moved into this environment are influencing each other, right? And we're adopting, you know, different behaviors and the foods we like to eat, and maybe the ways we, you know, celebrate and how we feel about our loved ones um, are all influencing each other. Well, for me and for a lot of, at least to the best of my knowledge, alcohol researchers, um, that, you know, look at acculturation, alcohol use, we do tend to focus more exclusively on the experience of the folks who immigrated, right? And then, and then the descendants. So I was going to ask you, yeah. is this a, um, um, comes and goes, the acculturation process, or is it just the receiving 
or, or the emigrating culture that yeah. suffers acculturation. It's not, it's they they experience it right. They they experience it, and it's certainly it's there's there are there are positive experiences. There might be some stressful experiences that come along with it, but it's so multifaceted, right? And so you've got like again, I was saying like so across these multiple domains, you've got your behavioral domain, the customs, the rituals, the food you eat, who do you hang out with. You've got your value based domain, right? Like what are the things that are important to you what attitudes do you endorse and then you've got your identity domain like how much do you feel like you are a part of or one of either this group this other group or both they're not mutually exclusive though right and this is where the acculturation and enculturation come in so on the one hand and i'm just going to speak really more from from my own work again which is focused more on the experiences of the folks who have relocated and are in this new area that you could, to all of these varying degrees, you could certainly orient towards or adopt these characteristics of this receiving mainstream culture. But then at the same time, you might, you may then drop some of the same characteristics from your traditional heritage culture, but you don't have to, right? There's no rule, and there certainly is no process that we can measure that shows that that's what happens. You could, you could be high in behavioral, you know, customs from both cultures. You might find, and I think that this is something that's really interesting to study for, um, you know, as much like the the immigrants themselves, right, but like their descendants, how much does maybe say like the granddaughter of an immigrant decide she wants to orient more towards their Latin American heritage culture, right, to be more consistent with my own research. So the extent that you're orienting towards your uh, traditional uh, heritage culture, again, and my research would be like Latin American culture, um, that would be considered enculturation. Um, I, I refer to orienting towards the mainstream culture, at least in my own work, as U.S. acculturation, because I, I think that the whole process is acculturation, right? And so by saying acculturation, when I mean just orienting towards the U.S., I feel like it's a bit confusing and it's not really expressing the multidimensional nature of what's going on. Does that explain? How's that? So I think if I understood correctly, enculturation is mostly in one direction or, or it's how much the, the people that migrate here still want to identify with their their, their common culture, so the, the Latin culture in this in this case. Right. And acculturation would be the process of the mixing of both cultures in general. Or it, it's just the general process of what's happening. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 that in all of its forms, so right? The word acculturation captures all of it, I think. So enculturation is more precise than acculturation. It's more specific. Definition. Yeah, enculturation is really just going after one of the dimensions of the acculturation process, and it's the dimension of orienting toward or away from the heritage culture and for what I would call U.S. acculturation is another dimension orienting toward or away from U.S. culture, mainstream culture. And now would you would you like to 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 tell us how that affects the alcohol consumption in Latinos? So I can certainly try. Um, so there have been, thank goodness, some, uh, you know, literature reviews and meta analyses done that really try to kind of flesh out what is this link between acculturation and alcohol use. Um, theoretically, um, people started thinking about it a long time ago, th saying, oh, well, it kind of makes sense, right? We see we see maybe uh, mainstream U.S. culture as being more accepting of a lot of alcohol behaviors than what we perceive to be, at least, you know, some researchers perceive, um, you know, tra more traditional Latin American cultures to be. Um, so therefore, you know, as people orient more towards mainstream U.S. culture, they might engage in more of these high-risk drinking behaviors or just drinking in general. The thing to note, though, is that in the acculturation research, in, uh, especially in the meta-analyses and the, the lit review syntheses, is that there's, an, there's a gender effect there. There's, a, there's, there's this consistent gender effect where we're finding that it's women, right, where that positive relationship higher on U.S. acculturation is related to higher alcohol behaviors is a lot stronger than it is for men. And oftentimes in studies you see for men, it's not even hardly existent or, you know, in a couple of my own studies, it seems like it might even work the opposite way for men. So, um, so that's a really important piece of, of thinking about acculturation is like, okay, well, when does it matter? For who does it matter? Depending on how we're, you know, measuring it, of course. And I would say that it's that gender effect in acculturation that really provided, 
I don't know if platform's the right word, but just really, really inspired what is my current line of research and what I ended up doing for my dissertation and, and all of that. So I, I, I'm so, I'm so, I didn't know about this result or, or this fact that women that are, can, can you explain that result uh, furthermore? How, how does gender affect it? So women that are more accultured drink more? Yeah, yeah. So there's, so we can say, so generally speaking, uh, I, I hope I'm not, <laughs> I hope I'm, I'm not misremembering this meta-analysis by um, Loyan Zambawanga is the one that I'm thinking of. So generally speaking, there is a positive relationship between orienting toward U.S. culture, which would be U.S. acculturation. So that's just one dimension of acculturation, mm -hmm. right? So generally speaking, there's a positive relationship between that and let's just say in general alcohol use, right? So the more you're oriented toward U.S. culture, the more you drink, according to those results. And so does that mean that U.S. women drink more than Latin women? We often find that that's the case, but I would say that that's not always the case, depending on, on what study you're looking at and mm -hmm. what population you're looking at. So are you talking about college students? Are you talking about adolescents? Are you talking about older women? You know, like it, it really, it's it's so hard to make blanket statements like that, right? Okay. When you're talking about such a heterogeneous population of, of course, people. Of course, of course. But, um, but with the acculturation literature, that effect, that positive effect between U.S. acculturation and alcohol use much stronger for women than for men. And do you know why that happens? Well, this is where my research comes in because this is this is the stuff that really got me excited about what I started to see in the acculturation research, which I identified as major gaps, okay? So you would, I would, as a, I'm trying to channel back being like a master's student, right? And I'm reading all these papers and like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? And so <laughs> in all of these acculturation papers, you would find over and over, This effect was present for women, but not men. This effect was stronger for women and not men. So I'm speaking anecdotally across studies. The meta says that that's true. So, but I'm reading these papers and it was like in every single discussion section, and I'm, I'm exaggerating right now, but it seemed like in a lot of the discussion sections, it was always the same explanation, right? Researchers would say, well, this is probably because of the restrictive gender roles of traditional Latin American culture that they are much less encouraging of Latina women, you know, to engage in alcohol use than men, right? So for men, Latin American culture is more like, yeah, drinking, you know, and for women, that's not what's going on. And I kept seeing what I started to realize was this traditional gender role hypothesis, right? That researchers kept saying over and over in papers. And then I would go to the literature and there were no studies in hmm. psychology that actually backed this up. Uh, well. Let me qualify that. There were no quantitative studies, which I, I am a quantitative researcher, mm -hmm. right? That's I, my world is statistics and okay. gathering data and all of that stuff. So um, there were qualitative studies, right, where I would say absolutely these themes were emerging and th these were the discussions that are happening in focus groups. And, you know, people um, from, you know, like sociology and just writing texts about, you know, Latino culture, right? Like we're kind of saying similar things. But I really wanted to see some quantitative evidence to back up what I saw was this really common hypothesis. And so that was where I was like, that's where I need to plant my foot. And this is the gap that I really want to spend some time exploring because I felt like we weren't getting enough information about what was really going on. And it was like by just stopping right there and saying, oh, it's the gender rules, but not really testing it. What can we really do with that, you know, in terms of implementation into helping inform like alcohol prevention intervention programs we want to culturally adapt something we need more information so um so yeah so that's where i started getting into what i would say really took over during my doctoral studies and infer informs my current line of research right now with sussing out okay to what extent can we say that traditional gender roles for both latino men and latino women right are really contributing to drinking behavior. Is this traditional gender role hypothesis from the acculturation literature true? And what I have found now over the past several years is it depends and kind of. And one of the things that I would say I, I don't mind a critique of the acculturation research is the oversimplification of gender roles for Latina men and Latina, Latina women and Latino men is, is how much we can't just say It's not like this block of gender role prescriptions and that's it. There's so much more complex. There's so there are so many dimensions and layers there that you need to disentangle. Do you think it's a good time to explain which are the traditional gender roles? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, that's a good idea. 
So, um, okay. Uh, who do you so, want to talk about first? You want to talk about guys or gals first? So, from reading your, your research, I first of all, I didn't even know the word Marianismo. Yeah. Which, which would be the opposite of machismo, but for women. Kind of, yeah. Kind of, from what yeah. I understood. And I was also super interested in the distinction that you have in, in machismo, that there are yeah. two types of machismo, right? Yeah. Machismo and caballerismo. Yeah. That it would translate as, like, gentlemanship or something like that, right? Like a knight, like, like a, a chivalrous yeah. knight like type. Ca caballero, caballero in yeah. Spanish is a gentleman. Yeah. So it's, like, gentlemanship or, or knight. Yeah, it yeah. It's related to knight. Um, do you mind? Do you mind explaining those concepts? Yeah, please? yeah, I can certainly try, and I'll say that um, a lot of my the ways that I think about, I was trying to like, okay, this is where my perspective comes from, right? So the ways that I think about um, machismo comes from um, work done from um, Arseniega back in two thousand eight, and a lot of the people were before him. Um, Torres did some great work there, and so did Neff, and so. Um, kind of like acculturation, right? Where I was like, acculturation is actually not just acculturation. There are these different dimensions. Machismo is not just machismo. And so I remember this was something that um, always struck me uh, when I was in school and I was doing conference presentations and things like that, you know, with other undergraduate students. And again, you know, I was in a, in a community um, with a lot of Hispanic and Latino folks. And so I would talk about this concept. And as soon as you would say the word machismo, you'd always get, you know, like people at the post would be like, oh, yeah, oh, I know what you're talking about. You know, there, there are all of these um, just immediate uh, things that come to mind, you know, whenever somebody talks about machismo. And and in my experience, and I would say the literature kind of suggests this too, a lot of it is not good, right? Like it's not a great, it's, a, it's a considered a negative stereotype, right? It's saying like there's this, this, I guess, assumption that these characteristics are like, you know, really hyper-masculine, really dominant, really like men are superior. Strong. To women. Oh yeah, strong. You know, why would you cry? Brave. For, yeah, strong right. and, and brave, but like brave to a fault, right? <laughs> like where, you know, um, I think one of the... Tough. You exactly. Would, yeah. yeah. So super tough, right? So while I'm not saying that there are not men who don't endorse those characteristics, because there are, right? There's there's a variety of, of men endorsing a variety of characteristics, right? That is just such one small part of what a masculine gender role might might look like for somebody. And so what Arseniega did, and, and he's not the only one, um, but they really worked on identifying and defining in the literature this other set of prescriptions called caballerismo, right? Which is more about respect and, I mean, honoring your family and loving your children. And, you know, you're still a leader in your family, but it is, it is a much more what a lot of people would say a much more positive way to express masculinity like it would be like the typical man opening the door yeah like not allowing a woman to open yeah. a door or not allowing a woman there's still so it's interesting that you say that because i i in my research i try to stay pretty objective right so i one thing i don't ever want to do is look at anybody's gender role norms and say that's good or that's bad right but i will say that there's there's a criticism that i've read of this concept of caballerismo that there's like this benevolent sexist kind of nature to it that some people don't love so i i don't know i didn't make it up but um but yes yeah, so so chivalrous right like opening the door for a lady but either way i mean it's it's pretty clear based on there's a lot of evidence um across studies where you're kind of correlating these different constructs within machismo um, two different outcomes that caballerismo by and large is related to a lot more positive outcomes and traditional machismo the hyper masculine is related to a lot more negative what i really want to make clear though and something that i i would try to highlight in the studies that i did publish with these is that at least in the data that i have ever collected men endorse caballerismo so much more than traditional machismo, right? Uh -huh. Like that is so much more the salient gender role, it would seem based on sheerly on endorsement for men. Whereas like when I said, you know, when you say the word machismo, that's not what everybody's thinking of, mm -hmm. you know? So there's this real discrepancy there between what the stereotype is and then what seems to be actually happening and the extent that what's actually happening, like what men are endorsing and how they relate to these other outcomes is really critically important. Huh, that's interesting because, yeah, I was, I was just gonna say the same thing you, you just said. Um, when, when you think machismo, 
you think like tough, negative, yeah. like extreme manhood, like all the air quotes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, toughness and all that. And I, I see that as a, or I see that society sees it as a negative thing. Mm -hmm. But you say that in reality, there are more people that are being like caballerismo instead of machismo. Yeah, that seems to be. And again, that's, that's based on my research and that's from data I collected. And then I've also, um, I think it's in that literature review I mentioned earlier where I, I do note that that is like the data I collected are not dissimilar from other papers, right? It, it's a consistent finding where men, the caballerismo gender role is more salient to men than this much, the traditional machismo gender role. And I, I really, that's something that I think needs to be highlighted over and over. And I'm not saying that I think that we have perfected the ways that we measure these gender roles, right? Um, just based on like men I know, and again, living in the community I do, I, I think that we still are oversimplifying, you know, the gender roles that folks are experiencing, but at least we need to try to move away from such a negative hyper-masculine connotation that we have. Cause it's just not, it's, it's not that it's not true. It's just not as relevant as this other set. Dr. Perot, let's do a short break. And mm -hmm. then when we come back, we talk about Marianismo. Sure. Sounds good. All right. Science stories, science stories. Science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories. <laughs> Before the break, we were listening to Hit the City by Mark Lanigan and PJ Harvey. And now we're listening to Rolling and Tumbling by Jeff Beck and Imogen Heap. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's no particular reason why you pick these songs. It's just I just pick songs that I loved. I was yeah, like, you know what? They're great songs. If I can, if anybody listening to this just wants to hear some good music, I'm horribly biased, but here you go. <laughs> So would you say Marianismo is more related to machismo or to caballerismo? So I have a hard time answering that question, and this is why. So I think back about, I hope I'm not wrong about this, but one of the earliest papers that I'm aware of, um, scientific papers anyway, that broke down machismo and marianismo was from Evelyn Stevens in 1973. Well, I say scientific paper. It's more of a, a review, right, a description of what these constructs are. And the way that she characterized machismo and marianismo was that they were almost like they, they worked together in tandem, right? Like marianismo was the feminine face of machismo. And I've just always had a problem with that. I can say it now because, you know, I, I finally graduated. I got a job and I can say I don't I don't love that characterization, right? I don't. I, I don't really love defining one set of gender roles based on comparing it to another set. I really think that they really should be considered just entirely separately from each other. I would say that based on connotations towards the gender role, based on the ways that sometimes these gender roles are talked about in research, that people might associate marianismo with elements of traditional machismo. But the ways that I know Marianismo to be 
you know, defined in quantitative research, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily the case at all. So the way that Marianismo is defined in quantitative research, at least the way that um, I operationalize it in the studies that I do, is based off of work from Linda Castillo in 2010 and then beyond. And she identified five different dimensions of Marianismo. So, you know, we've got machismo from uh, Arseniega's operationalization there with two dimensions, and then Castillo's, uh, you know, definition of Marianismo, five separate dimensions, right? So these are entirely different sets of, of prescriptions, you know, that are, um, you know, transmitted through the environment, right, that um, Latina women are receiving and maybe adhering to, maybe not, right? And so because of that, they're also very different. It would be really hard for me to compare them directly to machismo, traditional machismo and caballerismo. I would say that some researchers have identified and label some of these Marianismo scripts as more positive and others as more negative. Again, I try to stay really objective there and think about what that means in terms of how they relate to outcomes. Um, and so I would say that you know, you've got um, this this one construct, this dimension of Marianismo called family pillar, right? And this is about being a, a source of strength for your family. And this is about, you know, loving your family, putting your, and like really putting your family. And there are a lot of people who don't consider that to be negative at all, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's a very uh, yeah. positive, that's a very positive experience. But then on the flip side though, somebody having to always be the backbone for the family can be really stressful, right? So it depends on the context. Like, in what context are you talking about? Yeah, and you let go of yourself a little bit, right? If you yeah. put your family first all the time. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So one of the, re so I, I believe I had the first quantitative study that really examined um, these different dimensions of Marianismo in relation to alcohol use. And so I want to kind of reconnect back to earlier in our conversation. So remember, all of this is coming out of the acculturation literature. What I saw is this traditional gender role hypothesis where it seemed to be a very oversimplified statement that researchers were making in the discussion sections of these papers. Oh, it's the gender roles. Well, so my work that I've done, right? So we've got a family pillar, right? We've got spiritual pillar, which similarly is saying, okay, well, the Latina is in charge of making sure everybody's spiritual well-being is good, mm -hmm. you know? Then you've got um, this concept of virtuous and chaste, which I think is more at the heart of where, like, the, the label Marianismo comes from, because it's about, like, the Virgin Mary, right? Like, you need to be pure and chaste and save yourself till marriage and all of that stuff. And then you've got and these two that often hang together, which is considered, it's called um, subordinate to others and then silencing self to maintain harmony, right? So, uh, you know, as a woman, your place is kind of subservient, right? And I will say again, I want to point out right away that just like with machismo and, and traditional machismo caballerismo, there are not a lot of women endorsing some of these, right? Okay. Like yeah. you see, there's a lot higher endorsement in family pillar mm -hmm. and the means for, you know, subordinate to other and silencing self are pretty small, right? So I do want to say that right away. But also what I found in my research was that these different dimensions relate to alcohol use in different ways. So yeah, sure. There are some dimensions of this set of traditional gender roles that do predict less drinking, right? Virtuous and chaste is mm -hmm. pretty robust. Yeah, you wouldn't, right? you wouldn't yeah. associate that with drinking at all. Exactly, so across, across the studies that I've done with it, that I would say that's the most robust finding. So a woman who does endorse more levels of this virtuous and chaste construct does tend to drink less and doesn't get drunk as much and you know all of that. But then the surprise finding and the one that I'm, um, I haven't started data collection yet, but I really wanna probe this finding is what I've noticed though is this family pillar, oh, right? Really? it's related to sometimes more drinking and more like, you, like binge drinking. Wow. Yeah. So, and that's in, and, and the population so far that I've tested this on though is Latina college students. So I do want to say that, right? So I don't know what that looks like in other populations of Latina women. Again, we're talking about very heterogeneous population, right? But so already though, we're taking that traditional gender role hypothesis from the acculturation literature and showing that, okay, we can't just say that. We can't just say that traditional gender roles contribute to less drinking among women in this group because that is becoming increasingly what quantitative research is not showing. We can't make those blanket statements anymore. When you were describing the five different types of marialismo, I was trying to f to think which one would be associated with more drinking and I couldn't right. I couldn't assign one like this one would probably drink more and so it is really surprising that the family pillar would yeah. in engage in more drinking. Right. So and they'll and I will say that the the 
some some results are really mixed across studies. So again, virtuous and chaste is the most robust. It's almost always related to less drinking. Um, and, and I think that makes sense because conceptually it's the most, it, it's the easiest to think about. I mean, yeah. to the extent that, you know, somebody thinks that maybe drinking alcohol or getting drunk is not a pure behavior, right? They're not going to do it. But um, I have a study right now uh, under review where um, we link all these dimensions of these traditional feminine gender roles to drinking motives, right? So this is where I said at the beginning, I want to try to bring the sociocultural, you know, factors mm -hmm. in with the uh, cognitive motivational framework. And what we see is, uh, so the silencing self and this subordinate to others is related to wanting to drink to cope with anxiety and cope with depression. And, you know, there are some negative feelings that, you know, may come along with these constructs, which makes sense conceptually. Well, I mean, it, it should be a lot of pressure to be the, the pillar of the family, right? Yes. Well, that's for the family, for the family pillar. We're not finding though. So the, uh, this sorry, is why sorry, I sorry. need to, yeah. yeah. So this was, the, this was a different finding. And this is why I'm really excited to collect more data and really explore what I'm finding with the family pillar, because the virtuous and chaste effect just makes sense. It's easy to explain. Mm -hmm. Even the, the subordinate to others and self-silencing, in a lot of ways that makes sense, especially now with this motivational study that I've got under review. I mm -hmm. can't wait till that comes out. So um, knock on wood. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but it's the family pillar piece that is one of the most confusing because, you know, in a lot of ways, this concept of family pillar is very related to familismo, which is in a lot of ways, a very protective, you know, uh, Latino cultural value for a lot of people and, and is associated with a lot of good outcomes. So, and, and I don't want to ever demonize just like drinking in general, right? Like somebody having a drink of alcohol is not necessarily a big deal. So if something predicts drinking, that's not necessarily a big deal. But the fact that Family Pillar is predicting like binge drinking, you know, and these hazardous forms of drinking, we really need to explore. And this is where, um, you know, I love working with the people I do and the students in my lab and, and hearing their perspectives, right? And, and I really um, appreciate when, you know, especially like Hispanic and Latino students that I work in my lab talk about their experiences. And I'm just like, oh, that's so important for us to think about. And so, you know, um, one of my mentees was talking about, oh yeah, well in my family, like it's so normal for us to, I mean, that's something that we do together as a family, you know, and it's not, the, the way that it's described in the literature on alcohol use is not necessarily reflecting what reality is for a lot of Latinas in the U.S. right now. And so I'm really excited about exploring that further so we can better describe what's really happening there, you know? Can I ask you a question about how you collect your data? Yeah, yeah. So um, I am... I am primarily a survey-based um, researcher at this time. So my data collection is almost always online, and it really is. It's, it's a lot of self-report data. So I have these different ways I operationalize acculturation, machismo, marianismo, and alcohol use, and people fill out surveys, and they submit them, yeah, and then and I, I actually, clean the data. <laughs> I actually looked into one of the surveys, or... or there are surveys that are widely used in mm -hmm. the in this kind of research, and I looked into them because I, I was super curious. And for example, there are questions regarding Marianismo or Machismo that are pretty like pretty extreme. So, for example, one of them is like and uh, like you have a statement, and they have to say how much they agree or disagree with this statement. Mm -hmm. And one of them that it surprised me, for example, it says it is necessary to fight when challenged. Yeah, and this is to to try to determine how machista or how, how much machismo this person has. Yeah. And my question is, since machismo is a little bit frowned upon in society nowadays, don't you think that is going to affect your results somehow? Yeah. That people would kind of lie, like to pretend not to be like strong into machismo? Sure. So I don't believe for a second that there are not limitations of self-report data for exactly why you just said. And one of the reasons why we have error and, you know, we could probably go on about replication crises and things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. So so I agree. And, and also I want to um, – so I've thought about that before. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And that's something else that my dissertation was kind of trying to accomplish in, in another way. So – when you look at the ways that um, 
Arseniega and then Castillo measured machismo, marianismo with things like, so for the machismo and caballerismo sale, it is, it is items that say, this is how you think a man should act. Mm -hmm. A man must be in charge of his family. It is necessary for a man to fight when challenged, right? And for marianismo, a Latina must be a source of strength for her family, right? So these are attitudes. And so one of the, one of my major research questions in my dissertation is, okay, well, it's one thing for somebody to have a set of beliefs or attitudes and endorse that, but what's really going to be more important and probably matter more in terms of how they're drinking is what kind of behaviors are they engaging in, right? Like, do the behaviors that they're engaging in, are they consistent with those attitudes? And so I developed these, I guess, complementary skills, I don't know what you call them, but basically I developed behavioral versions of those attitude-based scales so then we could actually, and this was a process where there were a lot of pilots. I mean, it, That's a mute. lot of iterations. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you if you had some sort of control to double check their answers or, or you know. Yeah, some, we, yeah. yeah, well, we, like I said, it wasn't, we didn't just throw out items and then say, okay, this is what we're landing on. So yeah, it took a, it took a lot of refining and testing the psychometrics and what ended up um, making it into that published paper. There's, you know, you'll see the set of items for the uh, Marianismo. So I, I just call it traditional feminine gender role practices scale. And so... What was really cool was in that study, we did find that endorsements of practices were different. There was a discrepancy between those and then endorsements of beliefs. But then even more importantly, there was a difference in the way the, the practice measures related to alcohol use versus the belief-based measures. And so I'm not saying that people won't under-report practices, right? So I don't think for a second that, well, now I've solved the problem of yeah, self-report because yeah, I just am not going to do yeah. that probably in my career. But at least it gives us another way of of measuring something that people might respond to in different ways for different reasons. And Dr. Perotti, I'm gonna take you outside of your field now, okay. completely outside of your field. I'm more on the biology side of, sure. of stuff. And that's partly why I find this all so interesting because it's so new in this kind of research to me. I did a little bit of research and scientists have developed alcohol preferring rats, mm -hmm. which is basically a, a study model to study alcoholism and the biological basis of alcoholism, having an animal model to study that. Yeah. And and this is this is a line of rats that is developed by selective breeding and basically use them to study drinking behavior and its consequences. And it suggests that there are certain physiological and genetic factors that affect drinking. Mm -hmm. And my question is, do you think besides the so sociological and cultural aspects, that there could be biological differences between Latinos and, for example, US uh, populations that could also be masking your results? Or do you know if somebody has done research on that? I'm sure, I'm sure the research is out there. So yeah, definitely I would say I am the least biological research-oriented person that I know. So I will say that you know th there, there has been enough research done with humans that I'm aware of that do suggest that humans have, they respond to drinking differently, right? And I know for, um, there, you know, there are certain alleles, right, that we have to take into account um, with people from various racial and ethnic backgrounds. So, you know, Asian Americans, um, you know, there's this phenomenon that happens with a lot of folks that they re react to alcohol yeah. use where there's, it's almost like an allergy, right? Mm -hmm. And it is, it's, it's a biological response that they're having. I'm definitely not an expert in speaking to that for various groups of people, but I feel like I, I never want to assume that we have all the answers. So even if you know there isn't research that already supports what you're asking, that it's not something that we should just stop looking for, you know. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I understand completely. So let's do our final break, mm -hmm. and then we, when we come back, let's talk more about. I'm gonna ask you more personal questions, if you don't mind. Sure. All right. Science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories, Start to walk. I'm fitting to start my dozen talk. 
What you think about ain't on my mind. That stuff you got is the sorry kind. Now you're the sorry mistreater, robber and a cheater, slip you in your dust, papa and your cousin, mama duty, lordy, lordy. Flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. New life for me. Ooh, 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 ooh. And I'm feeling good. Fish in the sea. You know how I feel. Wow, what a jam. Can we what just listen to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know how I feel. Blossom <laughs> Yeah, I hate to get it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't believe anybody who doesn't love that song. It's like there's It's just so no good. way. Yeah. So before the break, we were listening to New Dirty Dozen. Dozen, sorry, New mm -hmm. Dirty Dozen by Memphis Mini, kind of New Orleans feel, right? And now we're listening to the great Nina Simone and Feeling Good. Dragonfly out in the sun. You know what I mean, don't you know? I don't even have to ask why you picked this song, right? It's just so yeah. good. <laughs> so good. That's all so, there is to say. It's so good. Before, before I go into more personal questions, is there any myth around Latino and alcohol drinking that you would like to correct? You know, uh, like misconceptions that people might have? Yeah, so I love this question. And I, I you know, I don't necessarily want to say that there's like a myth that I'm going to bust right now, right? But I do think that this is an appropriate time to highlight how much we just need to do more research in general. Like so much of what we think we know about alcohol use and, and the patterns and the prevalence of alcohol use and what that means, right? What, what contributes to alcohol use. We just don't have enough large scale studies that go within Latino populations to really even understand what is going on with alcohol use among Latino folks, right? Like I, that's something that I found in the research that I've been doing is every time I go and I try to find the population-based research for Latino women to talk about, well, what's happening with Latino young adult women? It is so hard to find that information that isn't really, really old. So I think that, I think that, so there's that, right? So before we can even have myths or debunk myths, we need more information to do that, right? For sure. And then as far as, you know, are there myths about alcohol, you know, use in general, I would say that that's where, again, we really need to think about within groups, within, at minimum, within race and ethnicity and within gender, because, you know, you've got, there's a lot of dialogue back and forth out there about whether or not, this is a for example, right? So oh, moderate drinking has its benefits. No, it doesn't, you know? So there's this dialogue back and forth. And so what's really interesting though is it depends on who you're talking about, right? So that some of the more recent research that's out there, and I'm going to go outside of, you know, my primary population of interest here, but, um, you know, there's research out there that showed, yeah, sure, moderate drinking or light drinking is fine for maybe white women, right? But not for black women, right? That there are harms that, you know, happen for black women related to drinking that are not happening to white women. So there's just no one size fits all approach to even thinking about alcohol use at all. So I just think it's just, it, there's a critical need for us as researchers to, whenever possible, go as within group as possible to, to really flesh out what's really going on. Can I tell you a um, myth that I heard? Not myth, but it's something I, I hear. Yeah. Latinos drink more than Americans. Yeah, I don't know. I would say that there's, it depends on the study again. And I think that a lot of the research I've seen that compared to maybe other uh, racial and ethnic minoritized groups, um, Latinos tend to drink as much. Like they're they're more likely to drink as much, but I would say that, so that's that may be the case, right? But then you see that they also experience more alcohol-related harm. So that's the problem, right? That's where the disparities come in. 
So. So it's not that they drink more. They just like they use it in a risky way more often, maybe. I don't necessarily know that oh, I would okay. want to oh. say that. Okay. No, no, no. If, the, that, <laughs> if there's no data to support that statement, then I, I just yeah. think it varies across studies. Like that's okay. one thing that I just didn't. And maybe this is something that I'll get better at as I become more seasoned, right? Like I still, I'm still like a painfully early career investigator, but I just am so blown away by across population level research, like how different results really are and our ability to just kind of take this like summary approach to all of it is just, I don't know. Yeah. I just don't think we do it. People like to oversimplify and summarize yeah. and it's, it's not usually helpful. Yeah. It's not well, maybe, maybe I, maybe I need to, maybe I need to cut back on my disentangling a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> Dr. Barot, do you mind if I ask you what is your relationship with alcohol consumption? I mean, it's a pretty healthy one, so. <laughs> so, so you, you consume alcohol? I do, I yeah. do, yeah. I would say, um, thinking about, you know, back to culture, I would, I, I consider alcohol to be like part of my family culture, right? Like I grew up going to, you know, I was the cocktail waitress at my grandmother's Christmas Eve parties where everybody would be playing poker around the table and they'd throw me nickels and stuff to go <laughs> make them drinks. And I, I have a lot of fond memories of that. What's um, your favorite drink? Uh, well, do you have a go-to or? I do. So it depends. Mm -hmm. Context is everything, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. So if I'm if I'm going to a place that maybe is a little bit more upscale, I always want to know how they do their old fashions. It's like when I go to a New Mexican food restaurant, I always want to know how do you do your fajitas. I'm gonna base a lot of what you know, like what I think, and do I want to keep coming back here? By how old do you do this dish? So I'm I'm that way with old fashions. Right, so um, I like an old-fashioned with rye too. I like it to have a little bit of a bite to it and not too much simple syrup. So, and then I've recently, um, so for if I'm feeling fancy, you know, and entertaining like somebody um, at the house, uh, my father has recently taught me how to make a Manhattan, which I just found out was my great grandmother's favorite drink, and I did not know it was so easy. And it's really good. I really nice. like it. Nice. Yeah. Dr. Barot, you know, part of the objective of this podcast is to sh portray scientists as normal human beings and mm -hmm. air quotes here as well remove them from that pedestal and of studying in a lab with a lab coat and and just make them more relatable relatable to people you know sure so in that objective do you have any hobbies like that you could tell us about yes so yeah i, I love hobbies i i i really try i i I'm not gonna say I, I do work hard right like for the current grant that I have like I remember being on campus till like two in the morning more than once like right so it's not that I don't work hard but I really do try to whenever possible not completely buy into the fact that oh I'm an academic therefore I need to have no life outside of academia like I just don't I have no that's not the life life is too short to live like that so um, I really enjoy engaging in artistic hobbies. So, and that that runs the gamut of making really random crafts to drawing. Um, and then I love to play music. Like I'm involved in like this little acoustic cover band with like my best friend. And um, I just started working with another band as like a vocalist that we're doing like, you know, just, it's just a cover band. So it's what, not. What kind of music do you cover? Um, well, so it's a, it's a real variety with my bestie. I mean, it's, it's a lot of stuff. A lot of it is songs that people would know, but maybe we just kind of have our own little twist to it. So some classic rock, some blues, some Americana, things like that. Uh, and then this new band, we haven't really been together long, but it's a lot of uh, blues-infused rock. So it is a light hobby. Okay. <laughs> like my friend and I, we will play, um, so we do gig occasionally, but it's like we play markets, you know, like we'll set up like next to the vendors. Well, that's and so, just, so much it, fun, it is, right? It's, it is, it has to be fun. Like if it's not, if it's not fun, if it becomes too serious and I'm not going to want to do it, it's supposed to be a hobby and it's supposed to bring me joy. So, um, but I, I love it. I mean, it's such a fun way to spend my time. And then you mentioned that doing research, somebody pulled a prank on you. Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you mind I, sharing that story? Yeah, I will. I will because I'm never going to let this go. So <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to call this guy out too because he's my friend so I can do that. No, I just, um, you know, I don't work in the field or anything like that. I mean, most of my job is really spent behind a desk, you know, running statistics and writing papers. But when I defended my master's thesis, um, 
well, when I was in the master's program, I was really good friends with a doctoral student at the same school, and I'm still, I mean, he's still one of my favorite people, Dr. Willie Hale. I will drop his name right now. And so he did a lot of work with me, uh, showing me these advanced statistical techniques, and I was able to take that and apply it to my master's thesis, which ended up becoming one of my first publications, which was pretty great. It was a conditional process analysis, right? So I was doing, um, you know, statistical work that was pretty advanced for where I was at, and he was, you know, really, really excellent at supporting me in that and had double checked my analysis and stuff like that for me and I I had my defense that day and I was psyching myself out I mean I was let's face it I was freaking myself out you know in the hallway because it's terrifying and um, just pacing around and he came and he found me and he was so serious and he was like Jessica Jessica, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but the data are wrong. <laughs> we messed up that analysis. I know this is a bad time. And he he played it off so hard. That's so that, mean. Oh, it was so mean. <laughs> I before can laugh about it now. Yeah, right before my defense. I can laugh about it now because he didn't he also he didn't let me. I mean, he he did not let me walk into the defense like believing that that was true. I will never forget that because I think about of all the things that could go wrong, right, in my line of work, like, that's the wrongest. Like, when you find out that you've spent, you know, years working on a project and you're about to present what you think is a lie, like, no way. Um, so, yeah. So, that was... Oh, my God. I still, He's so... I still react to I can't believe you're still friends. Oh, yeah. No, nah, I just kidding. I love him. I love him. I have yet to get him back the way that I should because I'm yeah. just not mean. <laughs> don't have that in me <laughs> so dr broad the final question would be you recently finished your pg quite quite recently right in I 2019 right? i think i defended in august of 2019 yeah and you're already an associate professor so that's i skipped postdoc that's amazing yeah congrats yeah. thank you um it's terrifying so <laughs> coming out coming out from from your your studies so soon ago so recently what what would you advise young students that they're doing their bachelors for example Right. So it, 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 it depends, I guess, on what they want to do. Right. And, and I got to say that one of the things that I really had going for me when I was in, earning my bachelor's is I was a very non-traditional student. I mean, I didn't start going back to college till I was like 30. So <laughs> I had kids. I, I had a lot of maturity at that point. And so it was easy for me to to, to, I had the frontal brain development, I guess, to be able to look and say, okay, that's the goal that I want, mm -hmm. you know? And once I realized what the goal was, I could say, all right, what successes do people have to have in order to attain that goal? And then basically map that out say, okay, I need to be proficient in research. It would be good if I got some teaching experience. And I also need to show that I can juggle some service on top of that, right? Like what is the job of an academic? And so as soon as I realized that I made sure that I had that in my mind as I was going through my studies and I went through my studies almost like right off the bat thinking I need to make myself competitive for this job in this way therefore I'm going to make sure I'm doing this this and this but I say that as somebody who I, I don't think that if I had gone to school when I was 18 or 19 I just don't think I would have been able to figure that out yeah so I think I hope this doesn't come out wrong, uh, and I say this having children myself that are older and about this age right now, but I do think that there's something to be said that if you're in school and if you're not motivated to be in school, if you're just not feeling it yet, it's better to just take a step back and wait till you are so that you can come back and kill it, you know, rather than forcing yourself to do it before you're ready. Because, it, and again, I, I have to say this as somebody who I'm only talking to people right now, right? If you think you want to get a PhD, if you think you want to be an academic, what you do early on does matter. Mm -hmm. It really does matter. And, and people are going to be looking at grades in historically different, difficult courses like yeah. statistics and research mm -hmm. methods. And so if you're not of the mindset that you're ready to just destroy those classes, then just back off for a second and reassess. And what about a PhD student? What would you tell to a PhD student? That's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it would be that different, except I think that by the time somebody gets to a PhD program, they kind of, they've kind of already mastered like some of that. But I do think again that what I see in graduate students that I work with or that I know is there is still something about, you know, not that you need to stress yourself out right away with saying, okay, this is exactly what I'm supposed to do, but what you do from that very first semester matters. 
right? And the more you can streamline your efforts across classes, right? So if you can, if you have to write a paper for class, try to make it as closely related to what you're setting yourself up with your dissertation to hopefully be a program of research that you're gonna step off from. So try to do everything you can to be as productive and programmatic early on without stressing yourself out too much. Like the more you streamline, the more you can do it while maintaining your sanity, you know? That's, That's great advice, yeah. yeah. Thanks. Dr. Barod, did you have a good time? This was a lot of fun. Did, was it? Yeah. Good, I had fun too. I, I This is so far away from my research that it's it was really entertaining. Yeah, thank you for following along with me on that. I know, I feel like sometimes I'm worried I'm speaking in a way that just does not make sense. No, no, I think <laughs> you, you, you did great. Thank you so much for being in Science Stories and to our listeners, thank you for listening to Science Stories. Thank you. Thank you.